Welcome to the Evoking History Podcast. We are called as a people to give testimony in the sight of the world to our faith that the future shall belong to the free. Since this century's beginning, a time of tempest has seemed to come upon the continents of the earth. Masses of Asia have awakened to strike off shackles of the past. Great nations of Europe have fought their bloodiest wars. Thrones have toppled, and their vast, vast empires have disappeared. New nations have been born. For our own country, it has been a time of recurring trial. We have grown in power and in responsibility. And welcome back to the Evoking History Podcast. With me on this episode is a colleague of mine, Samuel Harshner, who is a PhD candidate in the Department of History here at Marquette University. Sam and I worked together in a class. He was a professor of record and I was his TA. And then we also worked at the Center for Urban Research, Teaching, and Outreach together. How are you doing today, Sam? Doing very well, Ben. Nice to be with you. It's nice to be with you, too. So for those of my listeners out there who don't know you, why don't you give us a brief introduction, perhaps where you got your undergraduate degrees and how you came to be here at Marquette? Yeah, no, undergraduate uh, degree was at Beloit College in Beloit, Wisconsin. Did a uh, degree in history and political science while there. I fell in love with history my junior year and finished it and kind of just crammed out, uh, crammed out the, uh, the, the major in two years there. Loved it. Thought about going on to grad school, but uh, the post-college phase being what it was, I, I ended up working, um, you know, working for a few years. Then I went back to school, you know, kind of in a more practical vein, in a more professional vein. I went to, uh, I went to get a, a degree in uh, public administration. So I, I, get a, I did an MPA at the University of Wisconsin and uh, spent 15 years in various, uh, various sectors of government, uh, first with the federal government at the Department of Health and Human Services, then with the, uh, uh, the Wisconsin State Budget Office. I worked for a think tank at, at the University of Wisconsin called COWS, and then um, where else? The Department of Children and Families, and then finally ended up at UWM for a few years once my wife moved here to become a professor. Taking, I took advantage of the spousal benefits for, for education as soon as I could once, once I got here. And, and ended up in the history program, which, uh, which couldn't have, you know, probably the best decision I've ever made in my life, uh, other than deciding to have kids and marrying my wife. Sure. Uh, it, and and I've, lo- I've loved the program. It's been kind of slowed going as I, you know, I've been working full time the entire time I've been going through this process. But, you know, the light's at the end of the tunnel now, which is, makes me very happy. Did a, I did a master's degree in, uh, with um, a major in early American history, a minor in uh, early modern Europe- European history, uh, and then started the PhD. Yeah, it's all over but the writing right now. Right, just uh, working through the dissertation this summer, making a lot of progress. So it's uh, well, good. It's, I'm glad one of us is making a lot of progress this summer. Well, no, quarantine has had quarantine has had its uh, had its had its upside on this front, so it's been good. Yeah. Well, I definitely do want to talk about your dissertation, but mm-hmm. your answer had me. You know, as somebody who worked in the Department of Health and Human Services, just the the reaction, both statewide and nationally, to the COVID crisis has to be driving you crazy. I mean, I, I, I don't know that it's driving me more crazy than any sane person, but yeah, no, I mean, I have, uh, uh, you know, I, 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 have a, I have a certain perspective on it. Um, I worked on, I, I worked not on the public health side, although I worked with those people, but I was primarily working on, um, on uh, entitlement programs, Medicaid, uh, something called SCHIP, which is at the, I think they just call it CHIP now, but it's a, it's a, a 
kind of health insurance for, for uh, you know, low-income kids. And, you know, I mean, I think uh, there's a number of things going on, right, that really have resonated with me. I mean, the first is, you know, um, experiencing uh, government from the federal level, the, the frustration with states and the, and the fact that there are 50, 51, 52 independent administrations that are taking policy in different directions based on different political considerations was almost certainly going to result in, in, in kind of an uncoordinated sort of, uh, sort of response to the COVID crisis. You know, the, the other thing is people's lack of access to healthcare, right? People put off care, people, uh, people, people don't go into the doctor unless they, unless they absolutely have to because they, because they don't have uh, access to healthcare, right? I mean, it's became very clear, you know, in my, in my years in DC, although this was verboten, this was, um, you know, I was, I was there during the, uh, the, the W. Bush era, it became very clear that universal health care of some kind was necessary for, uh, you know, for this nation to, to kind of, you know, for anybody to thrive, right, for, for, yeah. for, there, for there to be any sort of sustainability for, for, for any sort of middle class uh, life. Uh, it, it was going to require, uh, it was going to require, uh, you know, universal health care, right? As long, you know, as long as that's tied to employers, there's all sorts of horrible things can, that can happen, especially in COVID, right? So, I mean, I could go on and on. I, I am, you know, I, I haven't been in health policy for a while, but it's, uh, but it certainly has, um, it has certainly brought back some, brought back some memories and uh, certainly some frustrations. Well, yeah, I can definitely imagine so. And, and I think you're completely right that the healthcare being tied to employment, I can understand why it was done initially, but right. it doesn't make any sense anymore. As long as for Americans, I think the, the stat I saw recently was the second largest bill Americans have per month behind their housing is their medical. And as, yeah. as long as that's the case, that there cannot be a thriving middle class. Just it's impossible, or you know, or or a sustainable like life for for working class. Yeah, like exactly. It's not, not it's just not doable. I and you know, I think um, yeah, you're right. I mean, there there was it was a pragmatic move to to give tax breaks to to businesses on the front end to to get them to pay for insurance. I mean, like like any sort of um, any sort of kind of weird policy, it's born of political compromise that that seemed valid at the time. But you know, I mean, the the we have the least efficient, right, most expensive. Uh, care in the entire world, right? We have worse health outcomes in a country like Cuba, which uh, which has which has no resources, right? So right. And everybody smokes there. So it's like you know the 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 reality of where we're at in this country is is, is truly a travesty, and and there's there's no other explanation for why we don't have universal health care other than the fact that there are um, uh, some very concentrated pockets of wealth that have a lot of interest in in pushing back against any sort of sane policy. So, 100% agreed. I always ask this of my guests who have dual degrees or had dual degrees. I myself have a degree in criminal justice as well as history. So that, and I think that colors the way that I look at the, the historical research project that I take and also how I just view history. How does having a degree in political science and especially having worked in political science field in actual policy making and, and policy fields, how does that color the way that you do history? I don't, I'm not overawed or, or impressed with powerful people, I guess, in, in history. So that's one thing I, you know, I've been around enough of these people to know that some of them are brilliant and amazing and some of them are absolutely, you know, not right. So, so I think, you know, that's one aspect to it. So I, so I, I do tend to see, um, you know, kind of the, the you know, I, I don't, I'm not, I'm not surprised by, by bad administration or bad political choices, these sorts of things, but I'm not, you know, I'm not ultimately a political historian. So, I mean, that doesn't come up as much uh, as, it, as it might have when I first got into history, I, I thought I would be a political historian that didn't, that didn't turn out to be the case. Um, I think to, to tell you the truth, um, 
the thing about my professional life that is that has um, impacted my my research and, and kind of the entire process of going through uh, going through this um, you know kind of this PhD program is has to do a lot with uh, what happened in 2011 to state employees in, in the state of Wisconsin. I don't know if you've heard about Act 10 or uh, you know kind of the the Wisconsin uprising in 2011 where you know kind of we saw hundreds of thousands of people out in Capitol Square in Madison pushing back against. Um, an anti-union sort of anti-worker bill by uh, by then Governor Walker. I remember, you know, I mean, it, the entire time I worked in the state of Wisconsin, we were in a fiscal crisis. We were always cutting, and I worked in budget too, so I was always in the process of cutting, you know, cutting budgets, trying to find uh, quote-unquote fat, you know, or or some sort mm -hmm. of like you know excess funding somewhere, which wasn't there. I mean, very lean operation, and it, it, we kept ending up ending up in situations where we'd have to be furloughed for a couple of weeks, right? Which at least we got a couple of days off, so that wasn't you know I mean that, that's not the worst budget kind of thing in the world, right? Sure. Well, I'll yeah. certainly I'll certainly pay for more time off. That's uh, that's been a theme <laughs> in my career as well. But um, uh, that that happened a lot. There, you know, we my wages. I never got. There were there like there were baked in raises for people who worked in state government. Uh, however, I never got a raise in my 12 years in in in, um, in in state government. Which doesn't mean I didn't make more money. At some point, I moved to different positions and stuff like that. But there was never a there was never in that 12 years an actual raise that uh, that went out to employees. Right. So that was one thing. Right. So you saw, you felt you felt your wages eroding over time. And then Walker came in and, and basically, I can't remember what the exact number is, and, and I'm going to, so I'm going to get it wrong, but it was something like the bill, the bill that he passed uh, took away, uh, took away, uh, you know, kind of a portion of the contribution to healthcare, still better healthcare than I will ever have again with the state sure. of Wisconsin. And then also hit us with furloughs again. And I think it was something like a 10% pay cut that I was taking as a result of that bill after years of just trying, you know, trying to grind away and find positions where you could, you could kind of move up. I was fine. I mean, it's not like that, but it, but it was, it was galling. And, and what I kept, what I, what I kept thinking then is, um, and this has really stayed with me is that my God, they're never going to stop coming for us. Right. This is right. the, they're, you're never safe from um, the needs of, you know, kind of the upper echelons of the economy to have more and more, and they will, they will take it uh, out of workers' pockets, um, you know, um, at every opportunity that they have. So that was once back, you know, and that led to despair for me. And so, but, you know, I mean, I think the thing, the other thing, the other side of this then was I was, um, you can cut this out if you want to, but this is a story that's, uh, that's always been with me. Uh, I was walking around after the, the, the Monday after this bill had dropped on, on Saturday, or I'm sorry, on Friday. And I was, and I was, I was thinking, man, it's just, this is shit. Like, I didn't like my job either. I was, um, I was really, um, you know, it was very, you know, bureaucratic work. You can accomplish some really good things, but it's very, you know, for, for anybody who really has a lot of curiosity and is, is really, you know, kind of wants to, wants to move around and do different things. Like it's a very process oriented thing. Right. So yeah. it wasn't, it wasn't where my heart was, but it was fine. I mean, it was a good job and I could, I could accomplish a lot. That's, uh, but but, but, you know, I, so I felt that on top, and then on top of this, I was like, man, they're just going to keep coming for more and more. And, and I felt despair. And then I was sitting out there on uh, Capitol Square. I don't know if you've been to Madison, but uh, uh, there's, there's well, a street I've been to Capitol, but I haven't been to the Capitol. Right. So, so if you go, um, if you're up in the Capitol, there's a square around it uh, of roads. And then there's, there's a big, the big avenue through town is Washington Avenue. I was uh, walking along uh, East Washington, which is on the east side of the Capitol. And I, uh, I saw this parade of this this of like thousands of kids of thousands of high school kids it may have been hundreds but let me exaggerate for this purpose anyways right. um but but a ton of kids walking up and they're chanting and i'm like what the hell is going on and it was the beginning of this whole pushback right it was it was these kids uh, marching on the capitol to push back against the pay cuts to their to their teachers in the process of that 
month or so. I can't remember how long it was. I was out there every day. I wasn't leader or this. I was just a dude who was out there. So don't, you know, I'm not trying to claim credit or anything like that, but um, it, it, it totally changed my, my perception of how this, you know, how, what, what was going on. And, you know, I thought, oh, look, you know, these sorts of movements, you know, and, and this, this, this thought came back to me recently with the, uh, with the George Floyd protests, these sorts of movements, when they get going, you feel like they're inevitable, especially when you're out in the mix and they're like, man, look at the power I feel, look at the liberation. I feel, look at, I'm, you know, fighting for my own, my own well-being, And this is, this is really meaningful. And, and um, how could they possibly stand in the way of this? Um, and so the, and then, you know, the thing that, the thing that happened after that, right, was that there was a recall. They chose to not to, to they occupied the Capitol for, I don't know, three weeks, a month, something like that. And they chose to leave and, and start a recall campaign with, uh, for Governor Walker. And I thought, okay, see, this will, this will happen. We'll recall them. We, victory will be ours, right? We, this, you know, the people cannot be stopped once they, once they get moving, right? And it failed miserably, right? And so, you know, a lot came to mind and it's taken, you know, I mean, throughout my, you know, I mean, my, when I got into this, like when I got into this program, my, first of all, I wanted to teach. I love teaching. Absolutely love it. Um, and so that was, that was part of it. And, and it seemed, you know, I love history. So this was, you know, so there's some joy in it. That's not, so it's not, it's not entirely mission driven, but what I wanted to consider was why the hell, did, how the hell did this happen? Right. How did, how did, first of all, how does this, how do, you know, how is it that I can't escape, right. You know, the hand of this, uh, the hand that keeps like taking stuff out of my pocket, keeps constraining me in different ways. I can't escape that. And then, and then when I, when I have this moment of liberation and feel like this uh, things are moving in the right direction it goes it goes sideways and we fail and so you know i mean it's it's um it, that that the, that was a question i had in mind like how do these how do these movements go sideways right and so i you know i i decided because i don't do language as well that you know i mean the moment the moment i could have taken the moment i i, I could take you know the moment i could look at uh, the first thing that occurred to me was the revolution right so i always had in, intended on studying colonial history with an eye to understanding what happened with the revolution what were its liberatory aspects? Why did it go sideways in certain ways, right? What, what, you know, kind of what, where did the reactionary aspects of that come from? So, so that was, that was my mind. I mean, I think if I had to do it over, if I had to start over, I think that you could do a similar sort of study, a similar thought, you know, you could have similar sort of um, question, uh, re, uh, you know, revolving around reconstruction. But at that sure. time I wasn't, you know, I wasn't as, as knowledgeable about that topic. And so it, the revolution it was, and, and that plays also, I, I love early modern European history. And so I can do both with this in, in ways that reconstruction wouldn't have worked on, but that's been, that's kind of been the, the motivating factor. And that's how that's, I mean, that's really how my, how my professional career has impacted this, right? I, I, I'm sure I learned things that I use, right? I'm certainly comfortable with data in ways yeah. that, that I think a lot of people are. I'm not afraid of numbers. I, I can use economic history pretty well because that's you know I did that's what I, I did economics essentially for for 15 years it's not at a high level but you know at, at least enough to be literate um, and so you know those are all things and skills that have been helpful but again I think it's it's the, the real formative experiences were the ones that I had you know just a, just as a worker right just as yeah. just somebody experiencing kind of what was going on in the, in the, in the state there so yeah I mean I'm, I'm not sure if I, I kind of went sideways with your question there but it's but no, no, no that yeah was a very Good answer. I mean, I have an answer to that question. Because it's interesting to me to hear you say that, because when you were describing your reaction to the march, of course, it might be a, um, because I know that you you do early America, but that kind of made sense to me that that's why you would choose the revolution. Mm -hmm. the very period. Since you've already brought that up, let's transition to what exactly is your dissertation looking at? 
Yeah, it's, it's engaged in two debates. Um, the first is the transition debate in, in uh, colonial American history, which is talking about the transition of capitalism from, you know, whatever pre-capitalist economy was there in the United States um, uh, prior to that, um, which, which draws it into also the debate over transition in, in European contexts, right? So mm -hmm. that's, that's the baseline, because I think, you know, I had a real materialist turn a few years ago, and I, I do find that, you know, and I'll get to the second half of it, I do think that, that that setting the core, setting the, the kind of economic baseline is what's going to inform or give you the proper context for understanding uh, other issues. And the other issue I'm looking at then is ideology, the ideology of the revolution. But, but you know, more so I'm looking at the development of uh, you know, kind of ideological sorts of constructs that are being mobilized in the revolution. Right, because you, you never see a revolution that is, is wholly based on reason and rational discourse and thoughtful, you know, thinking about uh, the actual uh, you know, kind of political stakes at hand. They're always rooted in some sort of uh, ideological framework that, that allows people to understand the world they're in. And that's gone in a lot of directions. Um, but, but, you know, and this will, this will relate back to my, to my story about, um, about, the, about what happened at the Capitol. And, you know, I'm, I'm interested in, in not just understanding ideology is, you know, I mean, there, there tends to be like a, a, a real Manichaean approach to, to history in, in contemporary, uh, yeah, at least in, in contemporary American history. Um, and, 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 you know, so there are people who say the revolution is horrible and it did all these horrible things and, and all those things are true, right? And then there are other people who say like, oh, it's, li it's liberatory and it has all these liberation, you know, li you know it created uh, you know, uh, democracy or democratic institutions and had all these things. Um, and I'm more interested in, in, in recognizing in that, that these are people who are, who are building a, an ideological framework uh, out of old detritus, right, from, from you know, feudal and post-feudal sorts of eras. Um, and, and some aspects of that are going to be liberatory, and some aspects of that are going to delve into, you know, how do I, I get mine out of this and, and, uh, and not other people? So, you know, I mean, I think that's, that's really driven by, you know, um, you know, that, that uh, not driven entirely, but like the thought first occurred to me was when, when we, uh, when I was part of those protests in 2011, thinking that, oh yes, this is all good and all going in the right direction and, and finding out that it, it didn't, right? So why didn't it go in that direction? Because there were, there were aspects of that, I think that were, that were insufficient or, or certainly didn't mobilize people or didn't, didn't pull enough of the, of the population into, into that, into that movement. And so, so the second, yeah, so the second half is really, is, is really looking at, and it's, and it's, um, you know, it's important to look at this in the context of economic development in the United States, uh, looking at the ideological constructs uh, that used by a particular population um, in the revolution, an important one, which is the Boston crowd. But, um, but, but um, you know, kind of what are they, what are they drawing on, right? Um, and that's changed, you know, my thoughts on that have changed over time. But, um, you know, I, just, to, just to give you a sense, there is a, you know, there's a very liberatory aspect to that. They are, they are very much interested in, um, in, in um, overcoming, um, you know, kind of the, the, the stratified hierarchy of that, of that era in, in many ways. Um, they're, but, you know, they're also interested in maintaining, you know, certain um, you know, kind of outdated modes of production uh, that are being challenged by, by, um, by kind of the, the spread of market, the market economy and capitalism. And they're also experiencing this, um, this transition, this this uh, this coming dependence that they're feeling, they they are they are suddenly dependent on the market. They are suddenly, you know, they have to they have to buy things on the market. They are suddenly competing with 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 uh, British industry, and so they're feeling all these tensions. They're feeling they're 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 being constrained. Um, and sometimes that the way that that gets expressed is through um, uh, you know things that have nothing to do with with the economic problems that they're having, 
Um, for instance, um, you know, they, they might have a, they, this, this challenges their, their conception of masculinity, for instance, right? Masculinities, masculinity is, is uh, in that area is wrapped up in, in um, an idea of independence. So we can, I can make it on my own. I can make this, I can make, a, you know, I can make a living on my own. I can take care of my family, that sort of idea. Um, as, as they become more dependent, that, that uh, this, this dependence uh, is often foisted upon women, saying women are becoming too independent. Women are becoming wage laborers. That's part of it. Um, uh, women are, um, uh, are, are seen as, as spending too much money. Women's roles as consumers in the family are seen as, you know, they're seen as uh, you know, sometimes it's reflect, they're reflected as kind of um, um, spend thrift and they're just they're spending they're spending too much uh, they're spending too much money um that's that's part of it there are also some sexual anxiety uh there, you know there's a lot of um anti-prostitution uh, sorts of sorts of riots these sorts of things that that are that are coming out as well um and you know i mean there's there's other aspects that i, I won't belabor it but that's that's just kind of a gist of it right so what are they what are what's the complex of ideas that is that is guiding these people as they enter into a revolutionary um you know kind of movement right and it's it's there's good and bad and we need to we need to we need to be able to pick that apart i guess without a doubt what is the temporal frame of your dissertation or i mean how What's, I'm sorry? the temporal frame so how much before the the revolution to how much after the revolution are you looking at i go all the way back to 16 uh to, to the 1620s okay. um and, and um you know mostly i do that uh on the the political economy side because what i'm doing is is um amongst other things i'm tracing things like um okay so there, there's um you know people are coming over overseas as a result of kind of the spread of the market economy in britain people are feeling all sorts of um they're they're being they're being um pulled into this new way of being uh and and there there's a lot of discomfort with it and and i think that's that's drawing a lot of that's pushing a lot of people over uh, to new england to try to recreate this this older style of life which is more communal in nature um just it, that's it, it's more I, I could be more nuanced than that but that's but in any case um so so i'm tracing then how do they how do they deal then with the fact that there are still market pressures being applied to them from overseas and and um you know one of the ways they do that is they try to they try to straight out regulate their economy right we will set wages we will set prices we will make sure that that nobody goes nobody starves but also nobody can you know there there may only be one carpenter here and he could charge anything he wanted to for for um uh, for for building a house but we're going to make sure he can't make more than a certain wage right so they'll set wage caps and things like that um then i'll look at and then i'm looking at um kind of the way that the boston crowd starts to starts to use their um you know kind of um, communal identity or the, the sense the sense in which they have connections to each other as as you know primarily as artisans not as any sort of um, class really but um, I, I'm using that to to, um, uh, to to basically look at how they use that identity to to push back against economic regulation uh, sometimes on moral they'll, they'll push back against um, certain religious innovations they certainly have a lot of issues with women so they're tearing down uh, brothels and things like that and um, you know, there's, there's all sorts of um, you know, there's all sorts of um, misogynistic sort of sim symbolism in, in their in their parades and their protests. Um, so, so you know, I, I've traced it. So I'm, I'm just to just to sum up, I'm tracing it all the way from from you know, kind of first first founding of the Massachusetts Bay Colony all the way till the Revolution. Okay, um, that's really interesting. What made you choose the the Boston Colony as opposed to one of the others? It's uh, you know just happenstance, right? I ended up doing a paper on um, popular resistance uh, to to the Brit to British imperialism in my first seminar, 
at Marquette um, and just kind of fell in love with the work of uh, Alfred F. Young, who, who wrote about this uh, holiday Pope's Day, which I had intended to make just kind of the centerpiece of my, uh, of my dissertation. Now it's really more, much more peripheral. Um, but it's just this weird kind of like pseudo medieval, like holdover sort of, sort of like procession in which, you know, um, these, these guys get, get together every Pope's Day or, or November 5th, so Guy Fawkes Day. Um, and they have, they have two effigies of the Pope and they, and they fight for, they fight to take control of the other person's Pope and they have this big brawl in the middle of town and then everybody goes and gets drunk afterwards. And then there's all sorts of like other figures that are involved in this. Um, uh, this, this dancer slash prostitute named uh, Nancy Dawson, uh, this guy, uh, Admiral Bing, who was executed for cowardice. Uh, there's, there's, um, uh, I'm trying to think of, uh, uh, the Pope, his wife, his wife, the, the Pope Joan, who's this like medieval figure of like, uh, you know, who was supposed to be this woman who somehow became Pope, uh, and they've, they've since covered it up. It's all, that's not true, but it's, but it was, it, she's a popular folk figure. Um, and I'm like, what the hell is this? What's yeah. going on here? And I wanted to, and I wanted to understand that. So, so that, that really, that really pulled me in. And then I was in Boston. And so then I, then I just kind of kept going, right? Out of yeah. sheer pragmatism. You know, I met New York would be equally interesting, Philadelphia as well. I, mm -hmm. I certainly think it, it had to be an urban environment because that's yeah. where, you're, yeah. But I'm not, you know, I wouldn't, uh, the countryside would have been an entire, it's an entirely different sort of, um, entirely different sort of ideological structure I'd have to look at, so. That can be the second book, as I like to say. Jesus. So. <laughs> God bless you, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, there's, there's a couple things. Uh, one, I love the um, 17th century conspiracy theories about a, a female pope. That's fantastic. Uh, was well, that's, that goes way back. That's like, yeah, no, sure. Yeah, but in the 17th century context. Um, but they also, actually, but not, no, say, they actually don't call her Pope Joan. They call her Joan the Pope's wife. And oh, they, okay. they, they, they have this poem about like the Pope hiding under her skirts because she's the tough one and he's like a little coward. No, it's awesome. I'll show. Uh, I'll show. Is, it's pretty funny. Yeah, you'll have to show I'm sorry. Go on. Go on with your your your. Well, no, I, I was going to. You know, uh, you you dropped some other tidbits that I think would intrigue our listeners, and mm -hmm. um, so uh, you know, the admiral who was uh, executed for cowardice. Yeah. So if you could relate a little bit of that story. Yeah, I'm trying to remember where he got and what what he did. He was a, he did he was a, I think it was I want to say Mallorca. He was he was fighting. Uh, he was an admiral. His name was Admiral Bing. Uh, and he was accused of cowardice and like, you know, fleeing, uh, um, uh, you know, kind of fleeing a, 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 a you know, kind of a, a, a battle uh, before, um, before it was justified, right? And they executed him, right? And so this, this uh, my sense of this from reading about it and reading, you know, how he's used there is he's, you know, he's kind of this guy who's, um, he, he's there to, to, um, uh, to point out what these men are not, or what they're, being, they're enacting a different sort of masculinity, right? So they're, Masculinity is supposed to be about economics and economic independence. Um, they're enacting a, a, a masculinity that's focused on physical prowess and, and courage and and these sorts of things because you know they're they're in a brawl. That's that's how they're that's how they're showing their men. Um, and this guy's a nice uh, you know a nice effigy to have, right? You can just you can just make fun of him. And they have they they portray him as dancing with Nancy Dawson, who's a prostitute. And a woman who is also independent uh, economically, and and somebody who's uh, who's also threatening by her, you know, by her sexual power and these all these things. And she's and she's the one, you know, and she's dancing with this this coward. And it really kind of shows kind of the the mental landscape that they're going through in terms of how they're thinking about gender relations at the time, right? They certainly would never say that they're worried about women usurping their role, but that's certainly what's being enacted in this in this um, in this uh, this whole ritual. So. 
Yeah, that's what really strikes me about the three examples that you gave is, is how much the political and gendered um, ideas of masculinity are wrapped up in all three examples. Because I mean, yeah. just, just as you were saying, that the Pope hiding underneath the, the Pope's wife's wrote, uh, skirts, you know, because she yeah. was a tough one, and all these subversions of gender norms, and also yeah. the economic anxiety tied up in that. So that, that I, I, well, I mean, you don't need me to tell you this, but that sounds like you're really onto something there that, that you can really tease out and, and make a very strong argument about. Yeah, no, and, it's, and it comes out, like I said, in other ways. There's this really weird debate in, that I found in the newspapers in New England where uh, there's this huge uproar about ladies' uh, ladies' gloves that they're wearing to funerals, and they're way too ornate, and they're way too fancy. We shouldn't be spending money on this. And so, you know, if you think about, um, you know, T.H. Breen and his ideas about how it's a consumer culture that's drawing Americans into, into war, you know, I would suggest that that's – I would suggest it's actually not – you know, consumerism so much as it is like dependence on, on, um, on the market economy that's really drawing them in. But, but that being said, like it's, it's um, the gender aspects that are pretty clear, right? Women have power as consumers, right? And that's, that's something Green brings out really well in terms of, uh, you know, how they're central to boycotts and these sorts of things, but also their role as consumers really is, you know, a problem. They're spending too much money. Why does this cost so much? Why am I always working? Why do I never have enough? Right? Oh, it must be my wife's fault. She's spending too much on gloves. And that's a, that's a sort of, you know, I mean, it's, um, and, and I think when you, whenever you see revolution um, happen, um, you see these sorts of, you see these sorts of issues with gender where, where things get fluid, right? And, and men get, get uncomfortable with that. The French revolution, there's the, um, oh man, I can't remember the name of the book. Uh, but there's a, there's a great book on a, on, a, on a grain revolt that happens right before the French Revolution in which men start doing, um, doing like grain, uh, you know, kind of participating in grain riots, which used to be a woman's, uh, that used to be a woman's role. Um, and that's seen as kind of like, uh, this is an emasculation of men. And that's really, that really, that really throws, uh, throws people, uh, throws people into, um, into a tizzy. Um, so I think this, this is, this is not uncommon. Um, and um, I'll have to look, look more deeply at, um, um, you know, like Haiti and, and Russia to really, you know, and some other places to, to see if this is, this carries through, but I, but I would suspect it does, especially I'm reading, I'm reading, um, uh, Black Jacobins by CLR James right now. And there's certainly, there's certainly aspects where, you know, kind of uh, protecting women and, and, and the ability to, to, to keep women pure and, and these sorts of things are, are, are really central to, to how, um, you know, kind of racial lines break down in that uh, in that conflict. So, anyways, it, it's that's that's a that's a kind of a, a tangent, but uh, but I, I suspect it's there in a lot of places. Sure, yeah, and I think looking at the the Russian and, and French revolutions make a lot of sense. That's just Haiti, but I think you could also, I think we often forget because of the revolution that this was a colony. So, looking at other colonies and seeing that structure there, yeah, the economic and political ideas there. You're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it, it, there's, you know, I mean, it's, it's not as dependent as like, you know, kind of these colonies that were just thoroughly dominated in, right. the, in the 19th century, but it's, but certainly, yeah, no, I, you're not, yeah. <laughs> Bringing Fanon in to, to, to read about the American revolution would be kind of a, a neat trick. That'd be, that'd be funny. Anyways, no, um, yeah. but no, it's, it's interesting. No, I, it, I, I think that would be worthwhile. Yeah. I bet you somebody's done that too. Yeah, probably. Uh, that is not my area, so it's hard for me to, to speculate too much. But I do really find it interesting, um, two, two things that, and I keep saying that because it is very interesting to me, but uh, two things that kind of stood out to, to what you said there were, you know, the, the concern over, oh, they're, wearing, they're wasting their money on these super ornate gloves, which reminds me of all the 
pushback against, oh, this person on food stamps has an iPhone and they bought a steak with their food stamps yeah. and all that stuff. So yeah. that the regulation of the poor and how they spend their money that continues to this day. But then also this idea that you know, Jefferson's ideals of republicanism on which the country is founded are outdated even before the document is written. Absolutely. And in fact, I would say they're, they're outdated by the time people are coming to the U.S. or to, to what becomes the U.S., right? Um, you already have roving bands of former peasants in England because they've been kicked off their land. And so this idea of being an independent yeoman farmer, yeah, that, that's like 10% of the population. Most yeah. people are screwed, right? Most people are. And, and I think Jefferson probably, you know, and Jefferson sees that and says, yeah, that's why, you know, he still does despite his, you know, he is more in terms of in terms of the franchise. He's willing to be more generous than the Federalists, but but he's still interested in making sure it's only independent yeoman farmers that are that are voting, and that you know we want as many of those as possible, but they're not going to be everybody, right? So I think it's um yeah it's still it's still very much there, yeah yeah. They, let alone let alone the very obvious uh, sorts of divisions uh, on gender and race. That, oh yeah yeah. That go with, that almost go without saying, but I, you know I want to make sure we say that. So yeah. Sure, totally. Yeah, totally. yeah but th but this idea. But this encapsulation of the language of mass democracy for the elite. Mm -hmm. So the language of inclusion, but the policy of exclusion is just uh, a fascinating thing. Well, it's, and it's universal in that era yes. too, is that, that you'll see these, you'll see these things happen. Like, you know, I mean, um, in, I'm coming back to Haiti because it's just what's on my mind right now. I mean, you see this revolt, the first revolt that takes place in Haiti is a bunch of like plantation owners saying, nope, we're independent of France now. Like this sort of, yeah. you know, and so, and they're thinking about their freedom and they're, and it's not, um, it's not, um, there's no friction. There's no, there's no kind of mental, uh, you know, uh, cognitive dissonance there. Right. And it's, and I think it's, you know, my sense on that is that we're coming out of an era in which um, uh, subjugation and, and kind of domination of labor in a political and, and kind of military sense is the norm. Right. And so that there, the, that, um, as they emerge this idea of freedom, this is brand new. Oh my God, I should be free. I shouldn't be, you know, I shouldn't be defending right here. And it's, and it, it's only later that they realize the irony of that and then have to come up with, you know, uh, the Calhoun-esque sorts of ideologies to, to justify it, right? Yeah. I can't remember who it is, because um, it's been too long since I've had Dr. Foster's class and too long since my qualifying exams now. But there was, I remember reading, it was either an article or a book that, that made the argument that the political use of the language of freedom was done so because you could look out, you know, Jefferson or, or whomever could look out his window and actually see slavery. So that mm -hmm. that entire American concept of, of freedom is based on having a enslaved class and enslaved people yeah. and not being considered part of that. Yeah, this Barbara Fields makes that point really eloquently in one of her essays. Just and I can't. I'm gonna. Well, I'll just paraphrase it because I I can't remember the exact quote. But she's like, she's like, you know, freedom only exists in the context of slavery. And what she means by that is that once once slavery becomes a uh, like a, a unique or like thing apart, like an idea, not not the norm. Like you know, there are various forms of domination of slavery by far the worst. But but yeah. you know, um, that would that have been the some some part of political control of labor had been the had been the norm. It freedom only comes about uh, slavery and freedom come about uh, necessarily at the same time because they you have to you have to demarcate where that where one ends and the other begins suddenly, and that never was the case before. And so no, I think that's I think that's uh, I think that's one hundred percent right. No, absolutely. It's um. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, anyways, go on, sorry, yeah. No, no, that was just all I was just saying, I and mean, you're probably, I think it was Barbara Fields, that name sounds, sounds right, uh, where I got read it. Yeah. Uh, 
so where are you at in the writing process? How far along are you? I'm, uh, I wrote the introduction. I'm most of the way through one chapter. I've, I've started a chunk of the second and it'll have six chapters total. So I have, okay. I have four more to go, but it's like, it's been a long time in, in coming and I'm, I'm in, in a groove and I'm really happy with how fast it's going. I'm writing about, I'm writing about a thousand words a day. So it's uh, That's a pretty good pace. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's not bad for me anyway. So well, <laughs> I, I also have the benefit of knowing everything else that you're doing. So that's, that's really good considering all the other stuff you have going on. Yeah. Which I, I want to talk some about that as sure. well, because not only, you know, are you writing your dissertation, but as you said, you've been working full time this entire time and you continue to work full time even now. So mm -hmm. would you like to speak a little bit about some of the things that keep you so busy? Yeah, I got lots of hats, right? So I work yeah. with you at, uh, at Curdo, right? My role there in terms of like kind of what I had been doing is diminished. Um, thank you, Ben. I appreciate that. <laughs> I wish I could take more up your plate, but. No, it's no. I mean, that's that's the university for you, right? Yeah. So yeah, um, yeah, uh, um, you know, and I'm really proud to be associated with that, right? I think what Rob is building is really unique and and um, and and um, powerful potentially, right? And I have I have um, a, a ton of respect for what he's done and how he goes about his business. It's a real model to watch how yeah. how to do how to do politics uh, effectively. Um, you know, um, and, and, uh, with, um, you know, um, in, in a really constructive sense. Right. Um, and it's, I've learned, I've learned a ton just by watching it. Right. So he's, he's really, he's really a thoughtful man. Um, and, and, uh, and, and not just that, I mean, I think he's something that I will never be, which is a really effective administrator, which is, uh, something I think he's had a lot of experience with, but, um, so anyways, it's, it, I'm really happy to be involved in that. Um, I also run the pubs program, uh, DG, I'm the DGS for the pubs program, which is an interesting position because I am the, I'm kind of the only person employer associated with the, with the pubs, pubs program other than a bunch of adjuncts. So it's a, it's an interesting, it's an interesting program. It's, it's um, a master's in public service, which uh, combines both nonprofit administration with, um, uh, with, with a kind of a, a social, social education, social justice, meaning they, these, these students learn about urban history. They learn about activism. They learn about, uh, they will be learning about organizing. We'll, we'll put it, we'll be, we're going to be putting a class on that in there. Um, so it's, so they're, they're learning how to become, um, not just, a, not just, you know, kind of widgets, you know, in not widgets, uh, you know, kind of cogs in a widget machine that turns out nonprofits or something. They're, they're there to really be actors, right. And to, to right. be able to have judgment, and an understanding of the political and, and, and kind of social landscape that will allow them to be leaders once they come out, right? Um, the program's been moved around a lot, and so we're, we're just trying to get it back on its feet and running again, and I'm really proud of the work we've done over the past year to get that, to get that in shape. Um, we have seven new students coming in this year, which is, which is great. Um, and so, um, yeah, and I think, you know, I think there's a lot of people at Marquette who want this to be one of our flagship programs. It really ties itself nicely to Marquette's mission, right? Which is to be, um, you know, it, to be, a, you know, kind of a force for, for, uh, for social change, to set the world on fire, right? To be men and women for others. These sorts of, these are the sorts of slogans that are out there. These are, these are the, um, you know, I mean, this is, this is a program that is, that is, entirely focused on doing that. So, um, yeah, I, and I, I will say like, just from a sheer, sheer joy standpoint, from what I, what I actually just enjoy most, um, my, the best part of my job is, is, is teaching. So I get to teach in, in both poli sci and I teach in the, in the, uh, in the pubs program, uh, and in history. And so that, um, you know, so I, I wear quite a few hats, but I, but I enjoy them all. And so I'm loath to actually give any of them away entirely, but it's, but it's, uh, 
you know, when you when you're trying to get your own work done, it can be it can be overwhelming, right? So, yeah, without a doubt. Yeah. For, for the benefit of those who don't know, what does the pub's acronym stand for? Uh, it's it's a it's public service. Sorry, my fault. Yeah, it's a it's a master's in public service. Yeah. So it's you know I mean it, this these are usually called nonprofit administration these these programs but again I think the 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 interesting thing about what the, how this program originated and it was Dr. Jablonski who started it way back in the day a former former professor at Marquette uh, it, it was all it always had a social mission and that was that that was implied and you generally get students who are who care about making you know changes right um, and and it's um that's 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 refreshing right sometimes you got to get them. Got to get them a little more focused on the nuts and bolts because that's what they're going to end up doing. But uh, but it's it's really you don't have to you don't have to prod them to to uh, to show any concern with the community that they're in. So that's nice. Now I think that that is a, a great program because we we're going to need more activism of that sort if we're ever going to pull mm -hmm. ourselves out of some of the messes that we are in as a country. And you know I, I agree with you. I think that it actually really does fit the mission of the university and the Jesuit values that it proclaims in a way mm -hmm. that a lot of other programs that uh, have a lot more funding and a lot more logistical support do not. And that is not to say that those programs shouldn't necessarily have that support. Sure. Uh, I, I'm just very happy to see this developing and, and coming into. And I'll admit that I didn't really know anything about it until you kind of took it over and it, it became much more closer to my own personal orbit of, of interests and activities. But I, it is something that I'm happy to see the university working towards because there are things that, about Marquette that I could complain about just as there are in any university or any large business or organization. But when they focus on the mission, they do good things. And I think this is one of them. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think it's, it's, um, you know, I think there also, there's also an intent, at least in the graduate school to, to, um, you know, to, to invest in, invest at least time in this, right? Maybe not, maybe not a ton of money, but um, there, there will be, there will hopefully be some changes that will really assist the program in the next year or so. So I'm, 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 I'm pleased with that, definitely. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing it grow and, and seeing the curricular development that you and, and, and Rob do and, and whoever else comes in and helps out with that. Yeah, yeah, me too, me too. <laughs> we'll see how that goes, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, especially, you know, I really want to commend you, and I'm, I'm just saying this because you're my friend and my coworker, but I want to commend you for the work that you've done on it, given the stress that and the uncertainty that we've all been under since March. Getting those seven students to commit with a, a global pandemic and, and the uncertainty of what exactly the next academic school year is going to look at is amazing work. It's, it, it's, well, thank you. I appreciate that. I think that one of the things we need to be aware of in this moment too, though, is, is, and I think the pandemic adds some, uh, another specter to it is that, uh, you know, when you're in an economic downturn, um, grad school becomes exceedingly popular and we definitely want to we definitely want to make our program attractive to students who are saying like I can't find a job or I'm the, the jobs out there aren't, aren't attractive to me Let, why don't I get a credential and find my way uh, into a more fulfilling career on the back end um, and we're making changes I think you know potentially looking at going to a program that can be done in one year uh, trying to do an ADP which would which uh, accelerated degree program which would allow undergrads to go straight through and, and cut off a year of the, the program and I, you know, I, I think that we can really, you know, in the next, in the coming year, right, once, hopefully, once uh, some of the insecurity around the pandemic uh, starts to dissipate, 
we can do a lot to to grow this even more. You know, in my mind, like if we have if we have cohorts of twenty people, that's where we should be living. That would be right. that'd be great, and that, that would give them enough peers, enough you know, kind of enough enough internal support to really kind of thrive. I think that would be a thriving intellectual community. So that's that's my dream. We'll see. I mean, we're seven this year. We're up. We only had we only had four last year. So this is we're moving in the right direction. So yeah, no, I mean, growth is growth, and, yeah. and especially as you not to use the same metaphor, but grow the connections with the nonprofits. And I, you know, mm-hmm. Milwaukee has quite a few. And yeah. So uh, that that seems like a natural um, connection. And uh, as it grows, I, I don't think that there will be any any problem attracting the people who want to be involved in nonprofit organizations to the program, hopefully. No, I think that, that we land people pretty well. So, I mean, I think that won't be, that won't be a huge issue, right? We just got to get the, we just got to, we just got to make the, make the, the offerings a little more robust and, and give them some infrastructure to fall into. I think yeah. that's the, that's the, that's what we, that's the work we need to do. Yeah. Definitely so. I, I think that having a infrastructure is incredibly important, um, especially for students who are coming into a, a graduate program who have gone straight from high school to university mm-hmm. to a graduate program. I mean, both you and myself are non-traditional students. We came back to it after years in the workforce. That kind of structure wasn't so necessary for me because I was able to go, okay, here's what I have to have. I am competent enough and have enough faith in my abilities to, to as long as the information is out there, see where the blocks need to go to make this degree path possible. Right, right. But a lot of people just, especially if they don't have any experience in university for their undergrad, they probably had a, some ability to, to make choices you would hope, but they're also doing it under the guidance of an advisor. And mm-hmm. I, I don't know that, and it, I can't really speak to it because I, again, my, my own experience has been kind of different. I didn't really rely on the advisors at the graduate level as much. Mm-hmm. But I think having that scaffolding in place so that they have that to, to remain and lean on is very important. Yeah, and it's, you know, I mean, I think um, it's difficult because, again, you know, usually a department has many faculty members that they can go to. Um, even, you know, the, the, the DGS is the point person, but, yeah. but they, they have a ton of people that they can talk to. Uh, and in this case, it's only me, right? And, um, you know, for better and worse, right, I'm not an expert in the field. Either. So mm-hmm. that's, the other, that's the other aspect. Yeah, of it. So, you will be. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, it's a challenge. It's a challenge, though. I, I so um, it, it's been fine thus far, right? But it's, but it, yeah. it's, it's, um, it, you know, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a program that we do really, really, in a really lean manner, you know, and uh, it really, really cheaply for the university. And, and I think we make a lot, um, uh, we make, we make a lot of real, um, we make a lot of positive press for the university. We do a yeah. lot of, uh, we do a lot of outreach to the community just by the very nature of the program. I think it's, um, you know, I think it's, it's something that can really help the university out. It's, um, it's a matter of, but again, we need to, we need to have a real kind of stratified structure for them to really kind of go through because, you know, I mean, I, I will say a lot of them, um, a lot of them are, are coming straight from undergrad that, that does happen, right? You also mm-hmm. have um, also, there's a difference in, in the way we experience education to what, uh, to what uh, current generations experience it, uh, because they, they have a lot more kind of real, um, you know, codified expectations, right? You will learn these outcomes, you will learn these things, and you will follow this rubric and these sorts of things. And 
I don't know about you, but I never, I never, I didn't know what a rubric was. I never, I never yeah. had one going through, uh, going through, um, uh, through undergrad or, or high school. And, and, and so when, when students are used to that, they expect more structure to, 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 to the graduate school experience as well. And that's something we have to, you know, I mean, it, you, you can like rail against city hall and say like, Oh, you shouldn't be this way. Right. This should be, this shouldn't be the way education works. Well, but that's, that's where we're at. And so we need to, we need to figure out ways to, to make it, easier for students to, to transition into that graduate school experience, so. Exactly, but I, I think you're making uh, another good point there is in that the railing against, you know, the city hall or whatever, in that if you want to go into nonprofit work, a lot of the time it is focused on that advocacy. And so you might have the experience and especially Marquette undergrads, because the, their, their activism, I highly recommend, uh, you know, mm -hmm. you know, or applaud, I should say, not recommend, applaud. Yeah, yeah. And it's, their engagement is amazing, but uh, your earlier comment about learning the nuts and bolts of how to work with a nonprofit and all the other elements such as fundraising or, or what have you, business administration, because you still have to staff the office and make sure, you know, have deadlines and, and yeah. all of that structure there too, to make, it's not just going out in the street and protesting or, or, or working towards very rarely them. that actually yeah, yeah 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 it's mostly it's mostly how do i pay my staff how do i hire the right person how do i you know how do i do a budget how do i yeah. fundraise these sorts of things right which which you know i mean i think uh, a lot of students can can come in and be um a little bit um uh underwhelmed by what the work is and and uh and that's that's entirely natural that, ma that makes sense to me if you're if you're motivated by uh, you know, can, you're passionately motivated by the social justice aspect of it. You have to realize that that's this is the medium in which you're working, right? Your yes. your work, your your the your tool is this organization, and you got to make it you got to make it work well, right? And so I think that's um, that's that's uh, so that's that's what the curriculum is focused on, right? It's got it's got a lot of good like social justice like classes and 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 you know kind of um, you know can little little pieces of other classes uh, in it it's you know there, there's uh, every every teacher has has that sort of bent um but we we, we haven't uh, recently till recently really gotten into the um uh, the real nuts and bolts of how you run an organization yeah. and that's that's a, that's too bad that's that's what we should be that's what we should be delivering so and we will we will we're, we're getting there right so yeah well speaking of organizing uh, you've mm -hmm. also done some organizing on campus in an effort to form a mm -hmm. union for uh, non uh, non tenure track faculty and graduate students graduate workers graduate workers excuse me yeah uh, yeah no it's it, the phrasing matters <laughs> it does no it is it's very yeah. important yeah um yeah no it's been um the one of the most rewarding experiences of my life also very challenging and very frustrating and and um you know i think um getting into it you don't necessarily know all that it entails and um uh i've learned that these are long processes and um you know i i i remain committed to to the idea that that um that uh workers require some level of uh, of collective organization in in order to to be able to adequately ad advocate for themselves in the workplace yes. and this isn't to say you know i mean i think that's that's why that's why i'm pushing for a union right i think the the um you don't see um you know it's not a moral issue either right? it's not like uh, administration is bad people they're responding to to um you know kind of the environment in which they're functioning and they have all sorts of incentives and pressures and stuff like that um and and um the the point is that if workers don't have a collective voice then that's then the workers present no pressure or create no obstacle to to um uh, to to administration and and you know the louder voices will get heard 
And I think that's that's the real point here, right? Is that that we're 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 making we're making the workers we're trying to make the workers of market get uh, uh, you know kind of a priority. That would be the that, that's kind of what the what the implication is. And you know, I mean, dream of dreams, it would be a wall to wall union, right? We'd have everybody mm -hmm. from uh, from the food service workers uh, and and to tenure track faculty in the same union, right? There's 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 um you know kind of logistical and uh, administrative impediments to that, but I think that would be you know I mean that's 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 when that's when you have a real that's when you have real powers when you can oh, do yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, without a doubt. Uh, do you yep. want to talk a little bit more about the the, the process that you underwent in, in starting this or? Well, I wasn't the one who started it. I've been in, involved primarily as a, in just having conversations with people, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm um, recruiter kind of. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, as it, as far as it goes, I mean, I've just had a lot of I've had a lot of conversations with um uh, with with grad students and non-tenure track faculty about, you know, how, you know, almost invariably who, who love what they do, uh, who, who, who are primarily motivated by feelings of precarity. Um, and, uh, you know, in the case of, uh, of faculty and students of color and, and, uh, and some of the women's students, uh, feelings of marginalization culturally. Um, and, and you have, um, and, and so, you know, I mean, I think uh, once you start having those conversations, the, you know, people see the utility of having a collective voice, what, what, what that would look like. We can, we can, we can begin to advocate for change, not you get everything you want to, uh, if you have a, if you have a formal collective voice. And, um, you know, I, so, so that's been my, that's been my real role. I haven't, I am not, um, I'm not been, uh, you know, as heavily involved in this year at all, um, either. Um, it's been, it's been other people who pick up that torch and that's the way it should be, right? It should be. Yeah. It should be it should be it should be a collective effort and, and it shouldn't it should be you know new people coming in taking it on and we have some really impressive people who who really are pushing everything right who are who are doing the work and and um i think you know in this this um the university is already responding to this in many ways and so i've been really been really heartened by that and i think um you know it's something we'll, we'll continue to, to advocate for the legislative i'm sorry the uh, the regulatory regime right now from um you know kind of uh, mitigates against uh, you know our efforts, right? Um, but that's nothing's permanent, so we'll we'll see we'll see where it goes. But I, you know, again, I'm really proud of it. I'm really proud of what we've built and and um, you know, kind of the leaders that that I've seen emerge and kind of the you know just the collective spirit that I've uh, that I've seen emerge out of this. So it's it's uh, again probably one of the most rewarding professional experience in my life, without question. So yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, Again, I think that it is very important, and that is why I have thrown my support into to the unionization efforts, even though I have not been as active in it as I probably could be. Um, but well, hey, no, I mean, but that's not, you know, I mean, there's a lot of people get a lot of, um, you know, feelings of guilt or shame about it. It's ridiculous. Like people, people contribute intermittently when they have time because there's so many pressures on our life right now yeah. that it, that it, you know, I mean, and, and I can speak to that. Personally, like like I said, I've been pretty marginal this this whole year with this effort, right? The prior year, I was very involved, right? And so mm -hmm. I think that that's just natural, right? And it's not in in guilt. The, the one of the biggest political lessons I've ever learned is that guilt and shame are not are not productive political uh, you know kind of political organizing tools. Like those are those are demobilizing. Right. They they keep people from trying to push and make change, right? So you're not going to be perfect. So. No. You do what you can, you know what I mean? Like that's, that's gotta be the, you know, the shame, guilt, you know, these sorts of things. That's, that's not helpful. So I, yeah, so I, it's, um, you know, in, in all sorts of various areas. Right. But, right. but that's, um, that's, yeah, that's what I've, it's, 
it's it's really key, right? It's really key to do what you can, but don't push yourself too far. Otherwise, you burn out. So yeah, yeah. that's that's very true too. Well, I've had you on here for pretty much an hour, and that's about all I ask anybody uh, to contribute because I'm sure you have much better things, such as writing your dissertation, to do today than speak with me. Um, but I wanted to to close. I always like to close okay. and let my guests promote anything, whether it's their social media or any other projects that they're involved in, and will want to raise awareness towards that I can direct my audience towards. So the floor is yours. I grew up, I grew up in a, in a small town in Northern Wisconsin, uh, stoic Midwesterner. The idea of self promotion is anathema to me. I cannot do it. <laughs> okay. So, so I think it's an important thing that people must do in academia today, but, but, uh, but I don't have anything to, to, to promote right now. So I, I just really appreciate you taking the time to talk today. I really enjoyed it, Ben. I'm glad you did. And, um, at some point I'll have you back on to talk more, um, either once you have the dissertation done or perhaps after the next academic year to talk more about pubs and, and how it's grown and changed. But uh, No, I've, at any time, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's some new research I'm engaging into. I'd love to talk again. So, but at some point we got to do a reverse interview where, we, where you get to tell us what you're doing then. Um, well, you know, I, I come from a small Southern town. So I, I get the <laughs> whole thing about self-promotion being anathema, even though I do engage in it on occasion. But um, I, I just don't know that I'm at a place right now to to really share any of the stuff that I do. But we'll, we'll see. Totally, totally understand, man. Totally understand. Anytime you want to talk about it, I'm here though. So thank you All so right, much. I appreciate much. it. No, thank All you right. for taking the time. Anytime, thank, man. And thank you for listening to the Evoking History Podcast. <laughs>